Thank you, Doug. Good morning, City Light. Yeah, it is a good morning. It's a good morning to dig into God's Word together. You may have noticed that Doug read uh, this morning the same verses that I read last week. And as we were praying um, with the team before uh, I got started this morning, um, somebody said, so are you preaching the same verses so you can do it better than Doug? Uh, No, that's not it, all right? Doug kind of preached verse 1 as an intro to the next one. I get to look at kind of verses 2 through 4, but they all go together. So we're dwelling in the same text this morning. And this fall, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, all the way through Thanksgiving, one chapter of Romans. Uh, So that means that if you want to study right along with us, you can read the book of Romans, particularly chapter 8, as you do your Bible reading throughout the week, and you'll be right where we are all fall long. Now, one thing I like to do when I read the Bible is I like to make note of things that don't make sense to me the first time I read it. (laughs) That means I got a lot of notes sometimes, right? Have you ever been there? You read the scripture and you're like, man, I just don't know. I got to dig in there a little bit. And so as I was preparing for this series, one of the verses in our passage this morning struck me and I thought, I got to dig in there. I had a question. Let me read for you verse 3. It says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God has done what the law could not do. I read that and I thought, well, what exactly did God do and why couldn't the law do it? It it feels like a setup for an introduction for God to do something only he can do, doesn't it? For God to do for us something that we cannot do for ourselves. Have you ever been in a situation like that where somebody does something for you that you couldn't do for yourself? As I was uh, thinking about this, it reminded me of a dream that I had in middle school. I don't remember a lot of dreams from that far back, but this one was particularly vivid and stuck with me. In my dream as a middle schooler, I was in at a, at a high school varsity basketball game. Uh, I was with my middle school friends, and we were watching the high school team play. And, you know, I am not a uh, large-statured man now. In middle school, I was significantly smaller even than I am today, all right? So you got this scrawny little middle schooler hanging out with his friends, watching the high school basketball game. That normal situation in my dream turned real scary real fast when I noticed across the way this big guy who was angry and he was staring me down. And I I look around like... Is he looking at me? <laughs> what do I do? How's he so angry? I kind of froze, you know, when you, you get uh, an experience like that, you kind of freeze. I look around, what's he doing? And then uh, it got even scarier as he starts like coming at me, coming my way. And in my dream, all of a sudden, uh, my friends are gone and it's just me and I'm starting to freak out. And so I make my way through the stands and through the crowd trying to get away from him and lose this guy. But as I move and move, he follows and follows. And as he gets closer and closer, I get more and more scared until finally he's like a step away from me. And I thought for sure he's going to get me. This is over. And right at that moment, boom, it happens. My dad stands up and just decks the guy. (laughs) Just like 
punch right to his nose, knocked him cold out. And I woke up in that moment. I remember uh, uh, waking up in a sweat, sitting up in bed, and then just laughing. <laughs> like, that was so unexpected. Like, my dad goes to our church. He's sitting right over here. Um, I have never in my life seen him punch a guy. I should say that. And at this stage, I don't think I ever will. <laughs> right? So it's, that's not the kind of guy he is in real life. But I am so grateful. It's the kind of guy he was in that dream. Man, I, I wonder to myself, man, in middle school... I don't know what was going on in my heart or my life or my mind that would spur on that kind of a dream. But I think the reason that I remember it so vividly is because it struck a chord with a deep reality that we all experience at some time or another. We need somebody to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. In that dream, it was a big, angry guy pursuing me. And of myself, I had no way to fight or hide or escape. And I think that's a reality that we all experience at some time. Romans chapter 7 sets up this tension that I think we all feel. We all need somebody to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. This is Romans 7. It says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We are unable to do that for ourselves. The Bible goes on. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but, the, but sin that dwells within me. So City Light, if you have ever been in a situation where you knew the right thing to do, but you chose to do something else instead, then you can relate to what Romans 7 is talking about. You ever been there? Like, why do we do that? Why is that a common experience for people like us? I want you to notice the bookends, the beginning and the ending of those verses that I just read for you in Romans chapter 7. The beginning says, nothing good dwells in me. And the end says, sin dwells in me. So why can we not do the good things that we know we ought to do and instead we do the evil things that we don't want to do? It's because there's something missing inside us. There's nothing good there. And instead, what is there is not good. Sin is like this law that rules over us from within. Like in my dream, the problem was a big angry guy pursuing me from the outside and I had no ability to fight or escape or defend myself. But in reality, I think that, that story hits a, a note that we can relate to because in reality, for all of us, the problem is sin that set up camp to pursue us from the inside. And we have no power within ourselves to fight or hide or escape. And so if you are a sinner that's feeling the tension of Romans chapter 7 and carrying the guilt and shame of your sin, then this morning I want to say don't despair. 
Romans 8 has good news for sinners like you and me. All right? I want the Bible, just let the Bible look you in the eyes as I read these verses again. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So, on the heels of the Romans 7 bad news that sin lives inside us like a parasite leeching on our souls, we arrive at the Romans 8 good news this morning. That is not the way that it has to be. That parasite can die. You can be set free from the power of your sin. And Romans is going to walk us through this truth like a lawyer making her case or a math teacher explaining his proof. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So, what did God do? We're going to look at two things from our passage today. One, God set us free. And two, he condemned the sin that was condemning us. What did God do for us that we could not do for ourselves? One, he sets us free. Two, he condemns the sin that was condemning us. So we're going to track through the logic of these verses together, just verse 1 through verse 4, and see how Paul, the apostle, missionary, church-planting, gospel preacher, builds this case for what God has done for us. All right? So verse number 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's saying somehow in Christ Jesus, sinners are not condemned. Sin may be in us, but when we are in Christ, everything changes. What does that mean to be in Christ Jesus? Well, it means believing what the Bible says about him. It means believing that Jesus is God who stepped out of heaven into earth and wrapped himself in flesh. It means believing that Jesus, when he was born into this world, into flesh, lived a life and never sinned. It means believing that Jesus, that sinless God who became man, came to save us And though he never sinned, he died a sinner's death on the cross and was buried in the grave. It means believing that that death on the cross was not the end of Jesus' life, but that Jesus rose again to new life. After having died, he rose again and ascended back into heaven to sit on the throne there So that having paid for our sins, he can also sit on the throne of our hearts. He can dethrone the sin inside us and take that throne himself. When you believe that about Jesus, you are in Christ Jesus. And the Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation means that you are not held responsible for the guilt of your sin. No condemnation means that you are not, uh, you don't have to suffer the death penalty that your sin deserves. Rather than dying because there is sin inside you, the sin inside you can die instead. 
No condemnation means the tyrant of sin can be dethroned from the ruling seat of your heart and Jesus can sit there instead. Verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's what Doug preached last week. So I got to move on. All right. That's good news. I'd love to dwell there, but we got to go on. We got more verses in Romans chapter 8. So verse 1. As Paul builds this beautiful picture of what God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves, says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that brings us to verse number two, which answers the question, why is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? If that's true, why is it true? Let me read you the verse. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So what did God do for us? He set us free. Romans says that there is a new law that sets sinners free from the law of sin and death with all of its condemnation. And that law is called the law of the spirit of life. And so in this verse, we see these two laws. And I want to look at the titles of those two laws because they kind of line up. They're parallel, aren't they? The, the titles are the law of sin and death and the law of the spirit of life. So they both have kind of three key words that line up and correspond and contrast with each other. They show us a picture of what is going on. Like first we see that they are both laws. They both begin the law of. That means they're powers at work within you. They're forces that determine your actions and your inactions. When, it, when the Bible says the law of, it's talking about something more than just a guide or an influencer who kind of offers up suggestions for your life. Now, these are laws that actually govern the way that we live. So first we see the law of, they're both laws. Next, we see the corresponding words, sin and spirit. So in Romans 7, we see the law of sin dwelling in us, governing our lives. Now in Romans 8, we see a new law. It's the law of the Spirit. And even there, we see an indication that there's something new, a new power that seated itself on the throne of our hearts. It's no longer sin that reigns there. It is the Spirit. And when the Bible talks about the Spirit, it's talking about the Holy Spirit, a person of the Trinity. It's God himself seated on the throne of our hearts. So when we are in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God is in us. It's us in God and God in us. It's a powerful change with incredible results. And that brings us to the last key words in the titles we, where we see the ultimate end of each of these laws, death and life. It's literally a life and death situation that we have on our hands. The law of sin leads to death 
and the law of the spirit of life leads to life. So why is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Because we have been set free from the law of sin that condemns us to death. And instead, we're filled with the spirit whose law leads us to life. You you tracking with this? I think somebody who's experienced a little bit of this, a taste of this, says amen, right? We are set free from the law of sin that condemns us to death, and we are given life by the spirit of life. So our logic goes something like this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, verse 1, because, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the sin that condemned us. You see how we're making a case here, um, tracking through these verses together. And so I want to pause here and ask, do you believe that Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death? Like if we're tracking through these verses and we read, there is therefore now no condemnation because God has set you free from the law of sin to the law of the spirit of life. Do you believe that he has done that for you? I come to passages like this in scripture and I always think we run a risk. We we run a risk of talking about what the Bible says and its truth without maybe just dealing with our own experience that says, while I believe that and long for that, I'm not experiencing that in my real life. Sometimes I think there's a gap between what we read in the Bible and what we experience in real life. Sometimes that gap like sounds in our heads like, I long for that. God, would you do that for me? I feel sin ruling over me. Like I know somewhere in the Old Testament, it talks about we return to our sin like a dog to its vomit. And I don't want to be that dog. You know, that's gross. I don't want to return to my sin, but I do it. And so when I read this, that we've been set free, I want that, but I don't know what that looks like in my real life. There can be a a gap. Anybody ever feel that gap? You don't have to raise your hands. Sometimes I feel that gap. And when we're in that spot, I think we can respond in a variety of ways. Let me give you a few categories. I think sometimes we can respond to the gap between what we read in the Bible and what we experience in real life with religion. Like religious behavior is a way for us to try to bridge the gap on our own by our good deeds. We think, man, if I do enough good things for God, maybe I will earn his favor and feel his freedom. That's religion. We try to bridge the gap on our own. We say, we recognize that it's there, but instead of turning to the God who saves us, we depend on ourselves to save ourselves. One way we can respond to feeling that gap is religion. Another way is rebellion. Like, rebellious behavior is making peace with the status quo and and almost pretending there is no gap. Like, rebellion, I think, can sound in our heads something like, maybe my pride or lust or anger or gossip or bitterness or divisiveness or you put in your sin struggle, name it and put it in there. Rebellion would say, maybe that's not actually a problem. Maybe I'm not experiencing freedom from this because I don't actually need freedom from this. It's not a problem. It's not a chain. It's not a shackle. It's just part of who I am. 
Rebellious behavior is continuing to indulge in the very things that condemn us and calling that freedom. We can respond to this gap we feel with religion or rebellion or we can respond with what the Bible calls repentance. Let me read to you a, book, uh, a passage from Scripture. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hiding or indulging sin only masks the gap between the freedom the Bible offers and the chains we feel in our real lives. The alternative is repentance. Repentance means we confess our sin to the, ones, the one who cleanses us and sets us free. We don't have to free ourselves. We don't have to pretend that we don't need freedom. No, we're free to be honest with God because he is the one who sets us free. He knows the law of sin and death rule over us. And he sent his son to set us free from that law so that we could live under a new law. So we don't have to save ourselves. We don't have to pretend we don't need saved. We can confess to God, I long for what you promise. I need what you do for sinners who are lost in sin. Oh God, would you see my sin and forgive? and cleanse and set free. We can respond with religion or rebellion, but I say we respond with repentance because our God is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse and set free. Amen? Okay. Number one, what has God done for us that we could not do for ourselves? He sets us free. Number two, he condemns the sin that was condemning us. That brings us to verses 3 and 4, which I think answer the question, how does being set free from condemnation actually work in my life? So if verse 2 answered why is that true, now verses 3 and 4 are answering the question, how does that work? Does it work like a presidential pardon, like Doug uh, illustrated last week? If, what, what happens to our sin when we're set free? Is it gone? If so, why do Christians still sin so much? How does this work? The big picture of verses 1 and 2 is incredible. It's no condemnation, set free from sin and death to enjoy the spirit of life. But how does that actually play out tomorrow morning at the office? Or next to the hospital bed? Or at the dinner table? Or in the classroom? Or Friday night at the game. How does this really work? Verse 3 begins to answer the question like this. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The very beginning of the answer to the question how is for God has done. God did it. Have you ever had somebody do something for you and you get the credit for it? I was thinking about this and uh, I remembered, I talk about college a lot. I guess it was influential for me. I remember when I was in college, I was taking an econ class and the final for the class was a group project. And at the very beginning of the semester, the professor um, uh, selected the groups, put me in a group and then assigned me as the group leader. Now, uh, at first, I was excited about that, but I soon realized I 
was a terrible group leader. <laughs> Absolutely terrible. I never scheduled a meeting. I didn't pay attention to any deadlines. I didn't know who was in my group or even what the details of the final project were. I did literally nothing for my group all semester long. True story, okay? Not proud of it, true story. And so about a week before the final was due, a girl in my group approached me, her name was Megan, and she let me know that she was in my group, which was news to me because I didn't know anything about my group. And Megan approached me, Eric, I'm in your group, and she was not happy with me at all. And she informed me that she had begun, at the beginning of the semester, she had begun working on the final project. She knew it was a big project, and she didn't want to wait till the end, so she started working on it, and she was just waiting for me to get the group together to share the load. But since I never got the group together, she just did a little more, and a little more, and a little more each week, until now there's one week to go, and she had essentially completed the entire final project on her own. And she asked me, Eric, I would like you to step down as group leader uh, so that I can lead for the last week and organize the final details of our project. I agreed, <laughs> the professor approved, and a few things happened because of that. Number one, my name got attached to Megan's work. Number two, my transcript now has an A next to that class, even though I did nothing for the final project. Literally nothing. I was trying to think of what all was required to tell you guys. I don't even know. I cannot recall a thing about it, except I did nothing and I have an A. All right? Now, I am not proud of the way that that worked out, and I'm sure Megan still cringes when she thinks about being assigned to my group. In so many ways, that's a terrible illustration of my character, and you all know who I am, but the point is this. Megan stepped in for me. I did nothing. She did everything, and I got the credit. Megan did for me what I did not do for myself. I think Romans 8 verse 3 is saying that, that somehow on the order of that, God has stepped in for us. He has done for us what we did not and could not do for ourselves. God didn't wait for us to get our stuff together. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He didn't wait for us to start living right before he stepped in for us. He didn't get bitter that we were lost in our sin and say, fine, just stay there. No, Romans 8, uh, sorry, the book of Romans tells us the opposite. It's Romans 5, 8. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't wait for us to deal with sin on our own. He stepped in when we needed him the most, while we were still sinners, while we were set against God, while we were rebelling, while we were choosing our own sinful ways over God's saving ways, while we hated God and turned from God and rejected God, while we were yet sinners, God showed his love for us and sent his son to die for us. In Christ, God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Amen? And so... God did it. 
back to the question, how does being set free from condemnation actually work in my life? God did it, but what did he do? Let's continue. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Here are the details. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So what did God do? I'm going to say three things from the text, all right? Number one, he did what the law could not do. So to understand this, to get a fuller picture, let's look first at what the law could do, all right? Um, The law could condemn sin. I'll give you an example. In the Ten Commandments, uh, they say this. uh, The law says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's the law. It's saying, in short, do not lie. Okay? Uh, Don't be a liar because lying is against the law. It's not showing love. It's not showing grace. It's not showing uh, the character of God. Don't lie. That's against the law. If you lie, the law says you're guilty. You see how the law can condemn you for your sin. It can identify where you fall short. It can call, you, call out your guilt. The law condemns you in your sin. That's what the law can do. The law cannot, however, condemn the sin itself inside you. The law can condemn you in your sin. It cannot condemn the sin itself inside you. See, the law sees your sin and condemns you. The law cannot see the sin in you and condemn it. The law can never see your sin and still find a way to declare not guilty. Are you with me? There's a difference here. In other words, the law could never release you from your sin. But God did what the law could not do. So what did God do? He did what the law could not do. Number two, what did God do? He sent his son. By sending his son. He sent a person of the Trinity, one with God, who possessed the very nature and character of God, he sent his son, Jesus, to become flesh. The very person of God became a person of flesh. That's what Romans chapter chapter 8, verse 3 says twice. By sending his own son in what? The likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin where? In the flesh. So God sent his son In the flesh. It shows us Jesus didn't come to just do business with what's going on outside of us. Jesus came to do business in the flesh. In what's inside of us. He came to do business deep inside. God did what the law could not do. The law judges what it sees on the outside. It could not get deep on the inside. So what did God do? He did what the law couldn't do. By sending his son in the flesh, what did God do? Number three, he condemned sin in the flesh. 
Jesus condemned the sin that was condemning us. He killed the sin that was killing us. He dethroned the sin that was ruling us. The book of Hebrews, I'm just going to walk through how the New Testament says this happened. The book of Hebrews says it like this. For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So God did what the law couldn't do by sending his son in the flesh, and when Jesus entered the flesh, he experienced all the weakness and temptation of the flesh. So he can sympathize with you in your weakness and temptation, yet Jesus never sinned. The law of sin and death did not rule over him. So Hebrews tells us he came in the flesh, experienced all our weaknesses and temptation, but did not sin. Uh, 2 Corinthians adds to the picture like this. It says, for our sake... God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus to be sin. So Jesus who came in the flesh and experienced all the weakness and temptation that we experienced yet never sinned, the sinless man became sin. God made him to be sin. And 1 Peter tells us what that looks like. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See this picture? Jesus came in the flesh, experienced all the weakness and temptations of the flesh just like we do, but he never sinned. And that sinless God-man became sin. How? By taking your sin and mine off of us onto him. He bore our sins in his body. Our sins out of our flesh and onto his, in his body. Jesus did for us what we could not do. He did for us what the law could not do for us. He got inside to deal with sin itself so that he could condemn sin without condemning us. Are you tracking with me? And it gets even better. Jesus died on the cross so that we might die. To sin, Or to put it another way, he died on the cross so that the sin in us might die. That shows us the difference between a presidential pardon and a Jesus pardon, doesn't it? Like a convict gets a presidential pardon by somehow earning the favor of the president. And with the stroke of the pen, the president says, well, I'm just going to overlook that sin. I'm just going to overlook that offense. You don't have to pay for it. And he writes it off. And oftentimes, the victims of that sin are left wondering, where is justice in that, right? The presidential pardon is high grace for the conflict, but questionable justice in a lot of ways. Jesus' pardon is very different than that. Though it sets us free like a presidential pardon, Jesus doesn't just write sin off. Instead, Jesus entered into the flesh 
so that he could take your sin and mine off of us, out of us, and pay the penalty that our sin deserved. He executed justice by himself for you and me on the cross. Jesus pardoned sinners because he took our sin on himself. When your sin condemned you and sentenced you to death, Jesus stepped in and served your sentence. He took your sin on his shoulders when he hung on the cross. He fulfilled the death penalty of your sin when he breathed his final breath. And he buried your sin when his body was sealed in the grave. Jesus did what the law could not do. It took our sin and buried it in the grave, thereby condemning the sin that was condemning us. How does the gospel work? It is not just Romans 8.1, good news that we should put on a mug, right? Like, it is not just a nice phrase that we can post online when we're feeling good about who we are. No, Romans 8.1, the good news that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is a reality that Jesus lived and died and rose again to accomplish for everyone who believes in him. The Romans 8.1 good news that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is a promise full of hope for sinners and glory for God. The Romans 8.1 good news that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is a truth that changes both today and eternity for everyone who is in Christ Jesus. That is good news. And friends, I got to say, we like to end by a response, a call to respond. It feels today... Like the right response to this is thanks and praise. Like asking anybody to do anything else feels like the antithesis of what the gospel is. God has done this for anyone who is found in Christ Jesus. And so today, this week, for eternity, man, we ought to be filled with thanks and praise for what God has done for us. Can we thank him together right now? Would you guys pray with me? Awesome God, I thank you that there is good news like Romans 8.1, where we just get to know the truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I thank you that that is true. And I thank you that scripture doesn't just leave it at that. Like, doesn't just leave us with uh, pithy phrases to believe, but these are deep, real truths that we can know you entered the flesh to accomplish for us, that we can know you promised to us and you keep your promises. It's a truth that changes who we are. So God, I pray today that you would fill our hearts with thanks. God, that you would that thanksgiving might look like being set free from religion, where we feel like we gotta do for ourselves what we know we cannot do. Man, I, I feel like, God, would you fill us with thanksgiving that we don't have to pretend that our sin isn't real or there or ruling us, 
But we can, we don't have to pretend that, that we are somebody that we are not. But instead, God, I just want to thank you that we can be honest with you about who we are, about where we are, about the struggles that we face, and you are sympathetic. The Bible says we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect knows what we've gone through, experienced those temptations. God, I thank you that we can confess our sins to you. We can be who we are. We can entrust you with our brokenness. And you are faithful to cleanse and heal and forgive. God, we give you all the praise for who you are and what you have done. Would you receive it from us and get the glory today and all of our days. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.